Dennis is an elder here. He's one of the uh, founding members of Cornerstone, one of the founding elders here at Cornerstone. And uh, he's been at Cornerstone for the entirety of Cornerstone's life and has served in many capacities and in many ways. And uh, still serving as an elder, and we honor and respect um, both he and Elaine and the, uh, the history that they have here and the, uh, the relationship and walk they have with the Lord as elders. And, uh, um, and so we, uh, we asked Dennis to consider um, once a quarter what it is that God would have him say to us um, as the people here at Cornerstone. And so, uh, uh, you know, here at Cornerstone, if, if you spent any time with us, we have a, a preaching and teaching team. Sometimes I teach, sometimes Matt teaches, sometimes Barry teaches. Those are the, the three primary pulpit teachers. Um, and uh, Dennis is a part of our preaching te- and teaching team as well, particularly serving in, in this regard. And so today is that day. Today you're going to hear from both Dennis and, and, and from, from me as well um, in the role that I play here at Cornerstone as, uh, as a pastor. And so... Um, uh, th- this is a, this is an interesting day. This is a cool day, and today's going to be a fun day uh, because Dennis has brought a significant amount of creativity with him. So uh, that's why we're keeping the kids in the room. So I'm very excited to hear uh, after last week's message. If you weren't with us last week for Easter, we talked about the resurrection and the cleansing power of the resurrection. Um, we talked a lot about water and about the resurrection from the Book of Ezekiel, dry bones coming back to life, um, culminating in this beautiful river of, of healing that flows from God temple, and it even makes the Dead Sea full of life. And uh, uh, the way that this, that the river of God cleanses us and washes us and purifies us, Calvin was with us and told us about uh, the word that he had from the Lord, that um, that God desires to, to wash our feet, you know, to cleanse us, to purify us, if we'll let him. Um, you know, it was a, uh, it was a really cool um, time together last week, but it was pretty clear that, um, that to, to all of us at that point, the question was, is, you know, what's the next move? Um, like, what, what's the next move in, in this place and space? Dennis had a creative illustration come to his head that uh, just fit perfectly with where we're at and where we're going. So um, we're going to invite Dennis up. Uh, let's give Dennis a hand. Okay, good morning. I have an illustration here that I did a long time ago with... Um, our homeschool, our homeschool group, and um, as we finished up last week, I thought, you know, that would really fit with what, what was going on. So I have this jar here which represents my life, your life, all of our lives. As you can see, we start out in life pretty pure, innocent. We were born in this life. It's all good. We're clean. But um, as we grow up, things change. I have a little two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old son, grandson. His name is Dylan. And um, he's two-and-a-half years old. When you tell him to do something, he gets a stern look on his face, and he puts his chin down, and he says, no. This two-and-a-half-year-old guy is already feeling that sin nature that's in him, and he is bucking it. And as he does that, this little thing called sin starts to enter his life. And I'm just going to show you how that works. Look what, look what happens. Oh, the pure life that we had, it's starting to get pretty cloudy. We grew, we, we grew up in life, and it becomes convenient sometimes to not tell the truth. So we fudge, okay, we lie. And as we do that, more sin. Things get pretty dark. Things start getting more cloudy. And then we have some, maybe have some friends that can be a bad influence on us. They lead us into some things that we probably shouldn't be in. And guess what? We keep getting more cloudy. And then we come to a place in our lives where we realize that we're sinful. And we start to think, I need to clean things up. We've become very aware of of, of our sinful nature. We want to clean things up and we think, well, I've been bad, so 
I need some good works. So we start doing good things. We help the neighbor down the street a little bit. Good works. There's our, there's our life. Didn't change things much. So we keep going. We, well, we, we go to church sometimes. We, we find religion. We think, oh, certainly that'll fix it. More good stuff. Still pretty dark. This is my life. What else can I do? Need more, need more good works. Keep putting it in there. Man, things aren't changing here much. I better go visit my, my grandpa. I haven't seen him in a long time. <laughs> Didn't change. My life is a mess. I know. More good works. Ooh. What am I going to do? Religion. I need more religion. Dump it all in there. Oh, man. I'm running out of options here. The point is, folks, until we find God's forgiveness, until we decide to surrender our lives to God, this is what we're going to look like. Let me show you what happens when you bring God in the picture and surrender our lives to God. Isn't that cool? As long as nothing blows up, we'll be good. It's a, it's a really fitting, fitting illustration to what we talked about last week. Remember that one place that we went to in, in Jeremiah 17? Um, th- these back-to-back verses you know, where uh, um, verse 8 says, Let the one who trusts in the Lord is like a strong tree that's planted by water. And a lot of times, a lot of us, especially as we, we pour you know, good works into there, and you know, we, we, we bring ourselves into the illusion that we're, that we're clean, that everything's cool. You know, I'm the one that trusts in the Lord. I'm that guy. I'm that woman. I've, I've got this thing. But the very next verse, verse 9, says that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked, and who can know it? That God alone can discern its thoughts and its intentions. Later on in the book of Jeremiah, we're told that Jesus, that his blood, that the Messiah that will come, that we know is Christ who died and rose from the dead, that he is the one who takes our, skin, our sins that are dirty, our, our sins that are that, 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 that mud upon us, that dirt that we try and scrub off. And he takes and makes them what, white as snow, you know, clean, clean as can be. Jesus alone cleanses. And the question today, the question for you today, the question for all of us today, not just, not just for you, but for, for Cornerstone, the question that we face at this point is, is, is not what do we need to be cleansed from. We all need cleansing. Right? The, the, we, we all need cleansing. The question is, is who are we looking to to wash us? Who are we looking to to wash us? Everybody got that? That's the question. You'll hear more from me later. My parent voice. You'll hear more from me later. <laughs> no one's in trouble. Okay. Um, today is the 15th day of April, 2012. That's tax day. I hope you've all taken care of that. But that's not what we're talking about today. Tomorrow is the 16th day of April, 2012. And 29 years ago, tomorrow, on the 16th day of April, 1983, there was a very beautiful young lady and a very nervous young man stood before God and their family and friends, and they promised their lives to each other. And they promised, for better or for worse, 
thinking it was all going to be better. <laughs> but it wasn't. There was plenty of worse times along the way. They promised in sickness and in health, thinking there would always be health, at least for 50 years. But no, it didn't happen that way either. They faced sickness. They promised you for richer and for poorer, thinking you would always be richer. Wasn't that way either. There were some tough times financially. But they hung together because of commitment. In case you haven't figured it out yet, that beautiful young lady is my wife, Elaine. The nervous young man is me. Commitment is what we're talking about today. Commitment is a virtue. The Bible gives us lots of principles to live by. But it talks a lot about commitment. I invite your attention to 1 Corinthians uh, 7. 1 Corinthians 7. Open your Bibles there. Commitment is lacking a lot in our, in our world, and our culture today, but there's also still a lot of commitment at some places. I doubt many of us would get up and go to work in the morning at 4, 4 a.m. if we weren't committed. I doubt few of us would ever get a degree in anything if we weren't committed to stay the course. And we admire those who stick, stick at it, just stay at it, just keep on going. But yet, in marriage, there seems like there is a lack of commitment. We have people all over the place who are choosing to live together because they don't want to commit. But in reality, they are committing. They're committing to no commitment. And you see what happens. I think it was Paul Simons wrote a, wrote, a, wrote a song. This goes back a few years. 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Some of you might remember that. Um, a line in it goes like this. Get on the bus, Gus. Don't need to discuss much. Drop off the keys, Lee. Set yourself free. Not much brilliance in there, except it rhymes but it shows a lack of commitment. We look for the easy way out. Now, to be fair, I, I understand, I realize that there may be somebody here who is divorced, who, who promised till death do us part, and meant it. They were going to stick with it to the end, but their wife, their husband, decided to leave. They're divorced, didn't want to be divorced, and I, I do not want to pour shame on you. Um, I want to be an, as honest and accurate as I can be without being harsh. So, um, yeah, I understand that. But I hope you can understand as well that this is helpful to talk about this because there's many others who maybe at that point, who are deciding, is this worth sticking it out? And so I want to encourage those. Um, so I have four principles here I've gotten out of 1 Corinthians 7 with help from Chuck Swindoll, who I appreciate listening to his, his teaching a lot. First of all, first, first principle, and uh, we're going to put them on the screen up here for you, and if you get out your bulletins, on the back of the bulletin, there's a blank spot there. If you have a book that you keep notes in, that's great. If you don't, write them down. You'll remember them longer. There's a spot there that says, Your Sermon Notes. That's where you write. Any more, any more hints than that? Okay. First principle. Are we up there? Yes. Marriages and families have conflicts, but they are not 
beyond solution. Look at verse 28 in 1 Corinthians 7. If you get married, it is not a sin, not a relief. If a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, I am trying to spare you the extra problems that come with marriage. There's going to be trouble. He doesn't get much more honest than that. You get married, you're going to have trouble. Jake and Steph were sitting up here and they had fright on their faces. <laughs> they thought this was going to be happily ever after. That's a fairy tale. (laughs) There's nothing further from the truth than riding into the sunset and living happily ever after. Ever ride in the sunset? (laughs) Can't see anything. Okay, I'm just being funny. (laughs) We're going to have trouble. And the trouble sometimes will be very difficult. Sometimes they'll be deep, they'll last forever. Sometimes you will come to an, come to a, an end in your, ability, in your ability to communicate. Your troubles will be so deep. Um, but in your conflicts, Be truthful. I'm amazed at how many husbands, how many wives will lie to their spouses all the time. Lives don't bear truth. Lies bear more lies. You just keep digging a deeper hole. And after a while, you you come to a point where it's really difficult to, to get out of it. But you say, well... If we both want undistracted devotion to the Lord, how can we have conflict? Well, listen, if you are married, you can't have undivided devotion to the Lord. Don't look at me like that. It's in, it's in the scriptures. Look at verse 34. In, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 34. Well, actually, back up. Let's go all the way back to... Let's start in partway through verse 32. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man can't do that so well. He has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be more devoted to the Lord in body and in spirit, while the married woman must be concerned about earthly responsibilities and how to please her, her husband. You're married to a distraction. I know that. This week I was trying to prepare, prepare for a sermon. I was also thinking about an anniversary. I was distracted. But I'm okay with that. I like that distraction. But it's going to distract us from the Lord. We need to understand that. Being married is, is that way. Um, okay, let's go to the second principle. Working through is harder than than walk work. Working through is harder than walking out, but it's best. It's our tendency when dealing with conflict to look for the easy way out. That's human nature. There's an old saying that I remember that goes something like this: um, following the path of least resistance is what makes rivers and men crooked. You think about that. 
We look for the easy way out. We get on the bus. We drop off the keys. We think we can put it behind us. But what happens is we take our suitcase with us that has all our issues in, and we take it along to the next relationship. And we start all over again. We have to work out our issues. We have to work through. Look at verse 27. If you have a wife, do not end the marriage. Work through. Stay in it. Look at verse 10. Now, for those of you who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband. It's a command. Stay in it. Work it through. You learn a lot of good things working through the hard stuff. I remember when our kids were small. I can't give you all the details, but I think we had three in diapers for the first five, six, seven years of our marriage. Um, Before the first one was, by the time the first one was potty trained, the fourth one was born. And diapers all the time. It wasn't easy. It was tough. They're up at night. Stay in it. Stay in it. Guess what? My kids are potty trained. (laughs) This too shall pass. Yes, this passes. I didn't, I know many of you are where I was, where Elaine and I were. He stayed in it. It changes. It gets better. Things got easier for us when the kids get, got older. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes the problems get bigger. Three reasons I want to give you why you should stay in it. Work through. It is the continual counsel of Scripture. Stay in it. It's throughout the scripture. Number two, our own growth in Christ is strengthened. We build character. Some of you might be getting tired of hearing me say that, building character. But building character is so important. Character is who you are. But nobody's looking. Number three, our testimony before the public. Most of whom you'll never know. But if you walk, they'll see. He goes to church down there. He left his family. They will judge you. They may, it may keep them from the Lord. Because you have a testimony before the public that you don't even, public, people you don't even know, they're watching you. Be aware. But, but this is where there's such a tragic part that makes it so tough on an individual whose spouse has left. They were in it till death do us part, they didn't want to be divorced. But now they are as divorced as, as their spouses, even though they didn't want to, and now their testimony is, 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 is um, scarred as well. I don't have an answer. It's, it's tough. We have to work through it. Sometimes you can't do it on your own. Many times you can't do it on your own. It is not... Taboo to get help. People, if you're in trouble, get help. 
and don't go to the guy you network next to. Public opinion will get you in trouble all the time. Public opinion is what says, if it's not fun, get out. Go to your pastor. Go to your small group leader. Go to someone you trust to give you good information. But it, it may take professional counseling, and that is not wrong either. There's a lot of good counselors who can help you through tough spots. Might be expensive. Let me tell you something. Divorce is expensive too. And it's much better to fix <clears throat> excuse me, it's much better to fix what's broke than to carry it somewhere else and start all over again with the same issues. It is definitely worth fixing your home, fixing your marriage, if you're in trouble. Um, okay, number three. Being committed is not demanding my rights, but releasing them. Our culture is very big on my rights. My rights. Another illustration from when our children were small. One day I came home from a hard day's work, and I was met at the door by my good wife Elaine with a screaming baby. Here, she's yours. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> For a second, my selfishness reared its head. I didn't say a word. I'm glad I didn't. But I had things I want to do tonight. This wasn't in my plans. But I'm thankful I had the wisdom not to say that because that point, my response was pretty critical to the near-term health of our relationship. And I walked the baby all evening. We had a colleague baby who screamed from 6 o'clock till midnight. It was tough. It was hard. I remember sleeping, hanging over the edge of the crib, patting the baby. And you pat past until she gets quiet, and you start slowing down, thinking, if I get slower and slower, after a while, she won't notice when I stop. And you start the process over again. And I'm half sleeping doing all this, but I'm still smart enough to figure out that maybe you can wean her off of that padding. But it was a long three months for us. We survived. This too shall change. But we gave up our rights. Baby's rights were most important at that time. And that's but there are other times when it's my rights versus Elaine's rights. And I don't wake up in the morning and say, okay, sweetheart, these are my rights. And she doesn't wake up and say, I've got a list of 20 things here today, Mr. Dennis. This is what I expect from you today. No, I'm thinking of her rights. She's thinking of mine. We're looking out for each other. We, we, we have to get selfishness away. That's what my rights are. It's selfishness. We have to put that behind us. It's an obligation. I hate to put it in such hard terms, but it's an obligation to meet each other's needs. Look at verse 4. Well, verse 3 and 4.
The husband should not deprive his wife of sexual intimacy, which is her right as a married woman, nor should the wife deprive her husband. Notice the husband is first. It's a duty. Some, some of your translations don't say it the way my translations said it. They say, do not deprive your wife of your duty. Be in it. The wife gives authority over her body, verse 4, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband. And the husband also gives authority over his body to his wife. Say, what? I don't even have authority over my body anymore? That's right. You give of yourself everything to your spouse. That's giving your rights. That's releasing. Let me tell you something. If you have it in your vocabulary, the possibility of walking away, the possibility of divorce, it will likely happen. Get it out of your vocabulary. Don't threaten divorce in an argument. That is so shallow. That is so damaging. Don't do it. Don't do it. Let your spouse know over and over again you are committed. Number four. This doesn't necessarily have to do with marriage. It has to do with life in general. But this is probably the most important principle of all of Scripture. Christians' ultimate goal is to glorify God, not to be happy. How many want to be Christians? I saw a few hands. I'm I'm relieved. Um, They are oftentimes mutually exclusive. But not always. Joy is more a part of Christian life and and not always happiness. Um, Look at the last verse in the previous chapter, in chapter 6. So you must honor God with your body. doesn't say with your mind. It says with your body. Honor God with your body. That's the same body you just gave to your spouse down in, in 3 and 4. You must honor God. How do we do that? You can't be participating in all kinds of debauchery and be honoring God. You need to live a clean life. When it talks about honoring God with your body, it means just that, live a clean life. Keep yourself to your spouse. When we're in the thick of things, when we're, when we're in very difficult things, we have tremendous opportunity to honor God because everybody's watching. When life is tough and you don't know which way to turn, people are there to help you, but they're also watching. It's tremendous opportunity to bring honor and glory, glory to God. <clears throat> when things are going good, it's easy to say, hey, I, I glorify God, sure. And people will, won't hear that near as quick as they're going to hear when you're in the midst of tough times and you're glorifying God. 
few years ago, I had a friend's father who, who had a massive heart attack, and he was, he was on his deathbed. And I said to him, I said, how can we pray for you, for your dad and for your family? And he says, pray that my father's death brings honor and glory to, to God. That touched me deeply. Even in death, this family was thinking about honoring and glorifying God. I'd be thinking about how we're going to cope. And... No. Honor God. Death is a part of living. We live to die. Heaven's a beautiful place. Anyone want to go this afternoon? I was afraid to ask that, but I did. No, we live our lives to the fullest, but we have the promise of heaven when, when, when life is over. And, and we glorify God in our lives. We glorify our, our God in, in dying as well. Let me close by saying, you can't change yesterday. You can't change who your descendants are. I mean, who your ancestors are. Today is a new day. Today, you can change things going forward. You can change tomorrow. You can change your descendants. And if you think about that, your descendants are going to be very different if you break up a marriage or if you work through that marriage and you, you show your children how to work through that. That changes life for generations. It changes your descendants. So important. So important. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I pray my words haven't been too harsh, but I pray that, that that I've brought out your desires for us in our marriages, in our lives, through this sermon. Lord, if there's any guilt, I pray that it's, it's just a conviction of your Holy Spirit. Lord, if there's comfort, I pray too that that is from the Holy Spirit. Lord, we desire to live our lives like 1 Corinthians 7 says. Lord, help us on that journey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Dennis. That's some good principled living that we can put into a, a to practice in our lives. The, uh, there's, Dennis said one thing that I'm going to start talking about for the next five minutes um, that I want to capitalize on, that I don't disagree with, but that I want to expand on when he said, um, um, don't, don't be afraid of, of getting help if your marriage is in trouble. Everybody look me in the face. You're already in trouble. Right? When the transmission drops out of the car is the wrong time to go to the mechanic. You, I'm not, look at me. You are already in trouble. Get help. And do it now. I'm not even talking about marriage at this point. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you as a human. Sure, I'm talking about you as, as, a, as a husband or a wife too. You are a sinner. You are fallen. Your heart is deceitfully wicked. You are beyond reproach. Right? It is, that this is why we need Jesus. What I want to talk about is self-righteousness. I had no idea Dennis was going to talk about marriage this morning because I was going to use marriage as the example for the self-righteousness. Right, self-righteousness is a phrase that we have, uh, that the world has actually twisted against Christians. And so we can't actually hear it well. When somebody calls us self-righteous, the first thing we say is what? What do we say? No, I'm not. And what are you when you say no, I'm not? You're saying I'm right. self right just Take the chus out 
And what do you have? Self-rightness. Almost the cause of every marital conflict is based on self-rightness. Almost all church conflict is based on self-rightness. We have, we have so dumbed down our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ that we've made it about agreeing or disagreeing. People say to me about like a sermon that I'll preach, I'm not sure I agreed with you about that. My response is, that, that means nothing to me. I could care less if you agree with me at the end of a sermon. I care if the Holy Spirit spoke to your heart somewhere through God's word in it, but this is not about agreeing and disagreeing. This is about living together. This isn't about right and wrong. Jesus is right. right? It's his rightness that is given to us, which is why self-rightness is so destructive, which is why you're already in trouble. Your marriage is already wrecked. You are a sinner. You are fallen. You are broken. We, we, we take this with us. And, 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 it, and in pastoral ministry, it gets, so, it gets so frustrating when a couple brings, you know, years of, of, of baggage that started way back when, when another great point Dennis made, uh, when they started lying to each other. You know what the number one lie is that couples tell each other? I'm fine. What's wrong, honey? Nothing. That's a lie. You just lied. Something seems wrong. Are you okay by what I said? No, I'm fine. (laughs) Whatever. We all know that's not true. But we paint over it. We gloss over it. Why? Because we want to be right. Because of self-rightness. Folks, you need help. I get personally offended when people think about counseling in a crisis standpoint. You know why? My wife and I have been in counseling for 12 years. Counseling for 12 years. And it is arrogant to say that, like, the counseling is some big, massive thing. No, no, it's not. It's scriptural. Take your Bibles, turn to Galatians 6. Counseling's become this moniker for being screwed up. Yep, that's me. Absolutely. And there's no one closer than my wife and kids to tell me and give testimony of it. No, they don't because they're full of grace and love. But this is the same thing for the church, and this is the same thing for the self-rightness that we talked about last week that we need to be cleansed from. It is self-righteousness. It is self-rightness that keeps us stuck in our, in, in, in our cyclical relationships, our cyclical brokenness that breeds divorce, that breeds conflict, that breeds lies within marriage, that breeds people that run instead of people that stay. Everything that Dennis talked about is, is a fruit and a result of self-rightness. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a gent- spirit of gentleness. All right, so that, that's an interesting moniker, right? It's an interesting title to give somebody, you who are spiritual. Um, in, in other words, like if somebody's caught in sin, this is not a rare thing. You know, like we, we sin. There's, we don't sin in order to experience grace, but we can experience grace when we do sin. And so those of you who are spiritual, in other words, those of you who, who, who haven't been tainted necessarily by that, he's not saying who don't have your own taintings, who don't have your own issues, who don't have your own sin, but recognize that when you live in community with people, be it a family or a, or a church body, we sin. And when that happens, the goal is restoration. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted, right? Which is what Dennis just did the whole time. The fear of the Lord was on Dennis this morning that he was going to be too harsh, that he was going to be too strong, that he was going to offend people who have a history of divorce in their background. This is what Dennis just modeled for us, keeping watch with a spirit of gentleness. Be careful unless you too are tempted. Dennis dealt with us in community, which is exactly what verse 2 is. Bear one another's burdens. And Paul just told you what that burden is. It's sin. Bear one another's sin. Bear one another's burdens. And he says, by doing so, you so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Jesus said it simply. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is not about self-rightness. This is about burden-bearing in love. If anyone thinks he is something, oh, now we're getting somewhere. I don't need counseling. I'm not broken. 
I, I got nothing to fix. It just, we're just normal, nor, normal marriage. You know, we just we, we have our stuff, but you know, we're not we're not broken. I'm not sure. You know, there's one of us up here who's not being gentle. I guess it's probably me. Bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, talk about not being gentle. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> he what? He deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. Look at it. Look at your life. And if you see the fruit of the Spirit there, that's a good thing. But if you are a man sitting here this morning who is aware that your wife has a weakness in her life, has sin that she deals with, has been offended by you, is carrying some kind of a weight, Whose, whose inner being is, is, is full and filled up with stuff that just weighs on her and stretches her and pulls her down. It's time to man up. It's time to get clean with Jesus. This is not about you being right before your wife. This is about you being right before God. You say, but I can't carry her burden. Yes, you can. That's what you were made to do. Men carry weight. Your shoulders can handle the burden of your family. Each one, verse 5, will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap life eternal. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, outside of the realm of marriage. Folks, we need one another. One of the issues I talked about last week, what is it that keeps us from the cleansing? What is it that keeps us? Why do we say no to Christ when he desires to wash our feet? Right, it's the question we presented, I presented you with before we got started this morning. We say no because of self-righteousness. We don't need his cleansing when we deceive ourselves into thinking we can cleanse our own. But that's just not the case. Because self-righteousness is not righteousness at all. There is one who is right, and that's God. But there's one who's true, and that's him. And you and I... It's not just that we're not just right. It's that we're completely wrong. We're completely separated from him. We we are apart from the mind of God. He he gives us his mind. He calls us into one another. How do we bust out of self-righteousness? I I think that's what a lot of us, okay, so I'm self-righteous. And that keeps me from receiving the cleansing of God. How do I get out of self-righteousness? Self-righteousness is a cyclical trap that we and, and the answer is by, through community. The answer is, is, is through relationship. The answer is, is, by, is by becoming a real person to the real people around you, of putting away and aside the facades that we carry with ourselves so as to impress not those around us, because I don't think that we pull the wool over people's eyes very easily. We just like to pull the wool over ourselves. That's why Paul warns us against self-deceit. So my friend... I, I, I agree. Don't be afraid of counseling, but don't wait till something's broken. It's already broken. We're broken. We're in need of cleansing. And, and the cycles and the patterns and the things that we walk in are not things that we can get out of on our own. We're not meant to. We're not made that way. You can't fix you. Otherwise, if that was the case, we wouldn't need the gospel. Jesus came to rescue us, which is actually the better picture than fixing. Because you're not a problem either. You're not something that needs to be fixed. You're a broken person who needs to be made whole, but only Christ can heal. Only Christ can bring wholeness in places where brokenness and sin and and hurt and abuse and addiction and and nastiness reign in our relationships. 
self-righteousness says, no, you stay inside of you and you fix you. And I hope you're saying, hear us saying clearly today, you can't do that. You can't do that. It doesn't matter how many self-help books you read. It doesn't matter how many sermons you download. It doesn't matter what kind of websites you frequent. This is about a spiritual inner transformation that happens by a surrender to Christ and to his blood to wash us clean. Anything else falls short. You're already broken. So receive the grace of God, the grace that is his blood and the grace that is being a part of a family of God with brothers and sisters who are also broken. It's just that we all walk around self-deceived, acting like we're something when we're nothing. And our pride, our pride keeps us from being the something that we're actually meant to be, which is glorified sons and daughters of God that God bestows honor and glory on and, 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 and elevates and, and seeks to make strong and good. It's just that we get it so twisted and so backward because we think that we're right. We think that we're self-right, and our self-rightness keeps us from receiving the cleansing that is Jesus' blood. So, good stuff today. It's good stuff today. It's, it's hard stuff today. You know, it wasn't necessarily easy, easy stuff to take in, um, but it's true stuff. And we'd be glad to talk more with you about it. Me, Dennis, Elaine, Sherry, any one of the elders. Um, and if we can help come alongside of you in your journey with Christ, that's what we're, that's what we exist to do. Um, so that being said, let's um, let's close our eyes and bow our heads. We're going to end with a song. We're going to end with a song that we're used to. It's, uh, it's called All Who Are Thirsty. Um, and I think it's a really good meditation to, um, to close with. And so, um, so as we sing this song, the song's about water. The song's about life. Right? This song's about, um, about the presence of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. The words... I'll speak them over you so you can meditate on them before we actually sing them together. All who are thirsty, all who are weak, come to the fountain. Dip your soul in the stream of life. Let pain and sorrow, let it be washed away in the streams of his mercy. As deep cries out to deep, We pray, come Lord Jesus, come. And come Holy Spirit, come.